surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? What's your guess? What's your guess? Which one? I think uh, if you've ever seen me dance, I think I'll be still. <laughs> Probably a good bet at that particular moment. But just stop for a moment and imagine what he's promised us. I can't really imagine the glory of heaven. Somebody told me one time that um, if we could just get a glimpse, just a glimpse of heaven, it would give us the strength to persevere on this road to heaven. But I got to tell you today, you've been given a glimpse. You've already been given a glimpse of heaven and you've been given a glimpse of hell. The eternal realm has been revealed. I believe what I hold in my hand is the only physical source of absolute truth on this planet. And I believe the Bible to be the Word of God, not man's teaching about God, but God's revelation of himself to man. So today when we open up Acts chapter 20, we open up an encounter with God. As we open up Acts 20 today, the Apostle Paul is moving from Macedonia to Greece to Syria, back to Macedonia, and he's going to end up in Troas. Macedonia is a thousand miles from Jerusalem. Paul's traveling around like crazy, sharing this good news. By the way, you got a copy of it. How amazing is this? The things that he's talking about that needed to be passed on, you got a copy in your language. But I've got a question, and when I read the text, I have questions like this pop up in my mind. Who's funding all this travel? I mean, he's making major travel. Who's funding it? Where's the money come from? A thousand miles from home and all this travel and food and lodging, how does he pay for all this? I understand how much it costs to go on mission trips. I've been on several. The church has sent out I don't know how many. Who's doing this? How can one guy, some, if you read through the text, he, he's a tent maker, right, on the side. You'd have to make a whole lot of tents. And tent making had to be pretty profitable to fund all of this business. Later in the book of Acts, we get a glimpse of how all this mission trip stuff works. And it's not just about Paul traveling all those miles then. It's about today as well. God uses people to reach people. I want you to come to grips with that. He could use a million methods, I suppose, but how does he do it? He uses people to reach people. In fact, the interesting thing about how he does it is he, he allows us to be partners with him in his mission. It's a partnership. In Acts 28, verse 10, look at what it says. Paul says, as a result, we were showered with honors. And when the time came to sail, he was heading to a new place. People supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. God just raises up people to supply the needs when the needs are of God. God uses people to fund Paul's mission trip. And i got to tell you, God still uses people today to fund his work on planet Earth. Let me give you an example. Some of you might be surprised. Some may not. This church 
takes about 20% of every dollar that comes into this church goes out in missions, 20%. We started years ago with 10%. And when we went into this big building program, we, we decided we would make an act of faith, a supernatural act of faith. At the time when we were going to borrow a lot of money to build a big building, we made a decision that we would trust God to the point that we would raise our giving over the next five years from 10% to 15% to missions, some, some, to a ministry outside of us. So we did, and after that we went to 16, and then we went to 17. This year, the budget of all of out, outgoing missions is around 20%. God still uses that money you put in the plate, 20% of it will end up in the long, big picture going externally to missions outside of our own church. We support from the local food pantry all the way to a hospital that's currently being built in Zimbabwe, Africa. To feeding children in Haiti to carrying the message of the gospel along with dentistry to Thailand. God still funds his work on planet earth every time we have a mission trip that leaves from this church or a youth travel team that heads out somewhere you know what happens it, it always happens somebody will come to somebody on staff and say i'd like to sponsor a kid on to camp i'd like to sponsor a kid going on that mission trip i'd like to i'd like to sponsor somebody that's going to haiti God has a method. He was working in the time of the Apostle Paul. He still does it today. He has a way to share the gospel. In Romans 10, verse 14, I want to lay a foundation for today. Paul has everything he needs to complete his mission because God's the one put him on the mission. But what, why the mission? Why are we sending out people to Haiti? Why are we building a hospital in Zimbabwe, Africa as a church? Why? 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 Romans 10, 14, there's four sequential questions. Here's the first one. How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? That's the first question. Why, why do we send the gospel to the world? Because the people in the world need somebody to save them. How can they call on him, Jesus, to save them unless they believe in him? Here comes the second question, and they are sequential. How can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? Third question. How can they hear about him unless somebody tells them? Fourth question. And how will anyone go to them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Messengers come in many forms. If you are participating in giving to people, maybe you never go to Haiti, maybe you never go to Zimbabwe or Thailand, but you, you're participating in funding those people who do go, you're partners with them who are partners with God. So God is raising up people in each and every town. Paul's traveling over all the Middle East. And you know what? God raised a particular person, a particular person, a particular person. And they're part of this ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's still doing it today. 
We pick up today's story in the city of Troas. Troas is 1,800 miles from Jerusalem. Troas is in what we would know today as modern-day Turkey. It's a Sunday, and the local believers have gathered in an upstairs room to listen to Paul preach the gospel. They want to know these words of truth. They want to know this story that brings eternal life. Acts 20, verse 7. Here we go. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Paul was preaching to them, and since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking. Since he's leaving the next day, he doesn't have much time in Troas, he keeps talking until midnight. Ooh. The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. It's Sunday, and they've gathered to take the Lord's Supper and to preach the Word. By the way, I don't know if you think of it like this, but you've got a copy of it. What Paul is communicating to the people in Troas, you have a copy of much of his conversation in your language, in your hand. You've got a copy of it. This is the pattern of the early church. They met on the first day of the week. We meet on Sunday. They were taking the Lord's Supper. You took the Lord's Supper. As much as possible, we try to pattern ourselves after the early church. And no, I'm not planning to preach till midnight. And some of you would say, amen, brother. And then something happens that will make this particular service quite memorable. Verse 9. As Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. Finally, he fell sound asleep, and he dropped three stories to his death below. Now, I remember when I was a kid growing up in church, somebody told me this story and told me how to always remember his name. You'd have cussed, too, if you'd have fell out of the window. <laughs> and I've always remembered his name. His name's Eutychus. Do you remember last week we talked about this supernatural power that the apostle Paul had? People that just came in touch with this handkerchief, people that came in touch with this handkerchief would be suddenly healed. So here we have a situation where there's a tragedy in the middle of a service. It's midnight, Eutychus has fallen out, and Dr. Luke is writing the book of Acts. Don't, don't miss this. Dr. Luke is writing the book of Acts, right? Dr. Luke. And he writes that Eutychus is dead, right? Look at the next verse. Verse 10. Paul went down, bent over Eutychus, and took him in his arms. Don't worry, he said, he's alive. Now, I don't think Luke misread the situation. I believe the power of God can raise people from the dead. If not, if you don't believe the power of God can raise people from the dead, I'm not sure why you're here today. Because it is the resurrection that sets us apart from the rest of the world. So he said, don't worry, he's alive. Then they all went back upstairs, shared the Lord's Supper together, ate together, and Paul continued talking to them when? Until now it's dawn. You think midnight was long. Now they've talked till dawn, then he left. Meanwhile, the young man, Eutychus, was taken home unhurt, and everyone was greatly relieved. You see, this service didn't end with Eutychus' healing. In fact, what I noticed is it got fired up. 
at Eutychus's healing. Instead of quitting at midnight, they've now gone till dawn. And I want you to stop for a moment and think about something. Do you know why? What would make a church service last till midnight? What would make them after this tragedy, which might have been a good time for everybody, if they're dropping out of the windows, it might be a good time to send them home, right? They were hungry for the word. They're hungry. You see, they didn't come looking. When, when Paul's coming to town and Paul's carrying a message, listen, Paul's carrying a message, a supernatural message of the resurrection of the dead. And they weren't looking for a 20-minute snack. They didn't want some real good-feeling marshmallow cream story. Paul, tell us the truth. Is there a resurrection from the dead? Is there eternal life? Is there something beyond this world? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? So I'm going to ask you a question in the room today. Are you hungry for the Word? Be honest. Be, be honest with yourself. And I'm going to hold it up. Are, are you hungry for the Word? The, the Bible says it's the bread of life. A living water. Jesus looks at one time and He says, whoever drinks this water will become thirsty again, but there's something I can give you. There's a water that I give you that if you drink of this water, you'll never be thirsty again. It satisfies the thirst down inside your soul. Are you hungering and thirsting for the Word? Or if you were honest, if you were honest, you came here today hoping you could get a real quick snack and go home. Which one? In Matthew 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those. Would you like to have a blessing today? Yeah, but I want it to come in the form of a snack. Would you like to have a blessing today? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. People today will go and watch a ball game. In the American culture, people today will go and watch a ball game for two to three hours but you can't spend one and a half hours a week in church. And people who do come to church, I have read to you statistics over the last year, people who do come to church, on an average, come to church 50% of the time. Is that what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Compare that to the church where Paul preached till midnight, some guy falls out and then preached till dawn. If you went to a concert, in fact, somebody just told me this weekend they went to a concert and they sang in the concert for three and a half hours. And the person who went to the concert left rejoicing that they sang for three and a half hours because they really wanted to be there and they really wanted to hear this group sing. And yet we come to church and somebody sings for 20 minutes, more than 20 minutes, and people say, you know, that, that's just too long. And you're singing to the one who saved your soul from hell. Something's upside down. Something's not right. I remember a friend of mine, Sadak Mashinde. Sadak came from Zimbabwe, Africa to go to school at Kentucky Christian College to become a preacher. We became friends years ago. In fact, later, a few years later, he brought his fiancee, Rudo, 
over to the States and I performed their wedding ceremony. And Sadek told me about what it is to go to church in Zimbabwe, Africa. And here's what they do. They travel on foot from great distances and they don't have a building. They've got a particular tree. It's a great big tree that has great big shady limbs and they gather under that tree and they walk, sometimes walk two or three hours to get there. And when they get there, if you're going to walk two or three hours, you don't really want 20 minutes. So they spend the day and then they walk two or three hours home. And I look at the modern American church and I say, something's wrong. They hunger and they thirst for righteousness. They want to be filled. And I've gone to Haiti. And I've gone to Haiti and I've watched their worship service there. And they worship for, they sing songs until I was exhausted. I'm not going to lie, I was exhausted. And then, then unknowing of their culture, we took, a, we took a break and got something to drink. And then we went back in and we did it again. And then I read stories. Chad called me in his office one day, and he showed me a video of these, this underground church in China. And this underground church in China, when they met together, they took the Bible in, in, in I get Mandarin Chinese, I suppose, and, and they were tearing out the pages of the Bible, and they shared the pages with all the people. And then when they would meet together later, they would all trade pages. And I won't, how many times have you heard me say, since I started this study through the book of Acts, when I look at the first century church and I look at the modern American church, I fear for the church in America. I'm fearful. Something's wrong. This is called Paul's third and final missionary journey. Paul is going to move from Troas to Ephesus. And everything, listen, everything is about to change in his story. By the time he gets to Ephesus this final time, he's been doing this traveling around missionary stuff for 20 years. 20 years. And I, and I contrast that to myself. This May, I will have been here 19 years. 20 years since he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. 20 years since he encountered Jesus Christ and got his heart transplanted. God took out his heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. 20 years and thousands of miles. 20 years and thousands and thousands and thousands of believers have now come to Christ. 20 years. And in that time, he wrote much of what we know today as the New Testament. Each of us have been forever affected by what Paul did on those three mission trips inside those 20 years. And actually, Paul was planning on sailing past Ephesus and going straight to Jerusalem. But God had another plan. God's about to interrupt his plan. So let's pick up the storyline there again, verse 16. <coughs> Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus. For he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to, go, to get to Jerusalem, if possible, in time for the festival of Pentecost. 
But when we landed in Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus asking them to come and meet with him. Now, I want to set this up. Paul had already been in Ephesus multiple times, and he has established a church there. I assume it's a strong church there, and it has elders leading the church there. So now he pulls into this port on his way to Jerusalem, and he sends word, I need all the Ephesus elders to meet me. So they come. The Holy Spirit is revealing something to Paul at this point. Something big is coming. God is about to make some serious changes in the mission trip status of the Apostle Paul. He sends for the elders. He wants a meeting. And I find this meeting to be one of the most moving scenes in all of Paul's ministry. Next verse, verse 18. When they arrived, the elders of the Ephesus church, when they arrived, Paul declared, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews, and I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Greeks or Gentiles alike, the necessity the necessity. I've had one message, whether you're Jew or Gentile, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. It's like he knows. Can you see it in his writing? He knows. He knows this is his final visit to this region of the world. He knows something big is coming. How does he know? The Holy Spirit is imparting something about the future in his heart. He knows. And he uses this meeting with the Ephesian elders to, re, to basically recap five points that he had already taught them over the years. And I want you to look at the five points. Before we go into the something big's coming, I want you to look at these five points. The first thing he said, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. In other words, my mission has not been my mission. I'm doing the Lord's work. Paul left his mission 20 years ago. He left his work 20 years ago. This is the Lord's work. Number two, I have endured many trials and even plots to kill me from the Jews who refused to accept the gospel. Endurance under pressure. 20 years I have endured. I have faced great opposition from my brothers, the Jews. But 20 years I have never stopped preaching. Number three, I never shrank back from telling you the truth, publicly or privately. Even when people don't want to hear it, he tells them the truth. It's easy to tell somebody the truth when they're going to welcome it. It is not easy to tell them the truth when you know in advance they're going to reject it. Paul knows this, and I wonder, do you know this? You know what the mission of the church is? Tell the truth and turn on the light. Our job as a church is to tell the truth. I believe I hold truth in my hand and turn on the light for those who are in darkness. Number four, Paul says, I have preached the truth to Jews and Gentiles without prejudice. In other words, this gospel message is for everyone, everywhere. Everyone, everywhere. And number five, what is the truth? If you were to summarize this particular moment, what is the truth that Paul preached? 
I'm going to tell you, surprisingly enough, it is the same truth. What he's reiterating in this scene is the same truth that the modern American church is struggling with. And yet he emphasizes it in his final encounter with the Ephesian elders. It's verse 21. I have had one message for Jews and Gentiles alike. What is it? The necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. The necessity of repentance. This has become the issue of our time. I wonder how many of you in this room recognize this issue. Repentance, the necessity to repent. How many people in the modern American church understand this has become the issue of our time? Why? Why is it the issue of our time? Why is repentance, when it is so clearly spelled out in the Scriptures, why is it the issue of our time? Because people love darkness. Let's be honest. People love darkness of sin more than the light of repentance. Let me give you an illustration. See, I'm convinced that each of us, have we've all sinned. It is our nature to sin. Do you think you ever have a day when you wake up and say, you know what, honey, I think I'm going to try to sin today. You don't ever have to really do that, do you? In fact, you just kind of let go and it'll happen. You'll sin. We've all got sin. It's our nature to sin. And sin, let me, let me paint a picture. Sin is when you turn your back toward God. Because you're going the wrong way. You've turned your back upon God. Because you know that you shouldn't be doing this. So you turn your back to God. And instead of, and God is light. So instead of turning your face to God and facing the light of truth, you turn your back to God. And if you're turning your back to God, tell me what you're facing. The darkness. And you're going to end up where you're facing and you're facing the darkness. You know what repentance is? You turn around. You turn around. Instead of walking into the darkness, you just turn around. Just turn around. But I don't want to turn around. What's the preaching of the gospel? Turn around. You're heading into the darkness. But I don't like the darkness. I like the darkness. Turn around. If you remain on this course facing the darkness, you will surely die. Turn around. Why is this the issue of the modern American church? Because the darkness doesn't want to be told about the darkness. In fact, the darkness would like for us to pretend like it's light. But it's just darkness. Today, if you call the darkness out, Today, if you identify the darkness, sin, and call it out and give it its title, sin, you will become the enemy. Paul says he never shrank back from telling the truth and turning on the light. Never. But I ask you, what's the alternative? What's the alternative, church? What do you think we're supposed to be doing in these last days? What's the alternative? If we refuse to call the darkness darkness, then we will, by default, enter that same darkness because we too will then turn our backs on the light 
Repentance is to come out of the darkness and walk into the light. Turn around and face God. Forgiveness, listen church, listen very carefully. Forgiveness is in the light. It is not in the darkness. The only thing that's in the darkness is more darkness. Forgiveness is in the light. And there is no, the Bible clearly, clearly states there is no forgiveness of sins without repentance. Jesus himself describes it this way. And Jesus is the one leading Paul on this mission trip. Here's what Jesus says in John 3.18. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in Him, in Christ. But anyone who does not believe in Christ, anyone who does not believe in Him, has already been judged. Why? For not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based upon a fact. Here's what I want you to get. Judgment, separation of the darkness and the light, will be based upon a fact. The NIV says that this is the verdict. This is the conclusion. The judgment is based on a verdict, a conclusion. What is it? What will separate the lost from the saved? What will separate the light from the darkness? What is it? Here it is. This is the conclusion. God's light came into the world. I didn't write it. These are the words of Christ. This is the verdict. This is the conclusion. This is the fact. God's light came into the world. What was that? His name's Jesus. But people love the darkness more than they love the light. Why? Why? It's in here. Why? It'd be one thing if I told you. It'd be my opinion. But what if Jesus told you the reason the people who are in the dark want to stay in the dark? Why? You better, you better listen to Him. People love the darkness more than the light for fear that their actions would be revealed. Verse 20, and all who do evil. And quite frankly, we've all sinned. That's everybody. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But what if it is the exposing of those sins that brings life? And what if you never expose those sins You'll die in the darkness. Listen to what he says, verse 21. But those who do what is right, they come into the light. So others can see that they are doing what God wants. What? God wants to save you. By the way, that's John chapter 3. I just read the verses following 316. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be, what? Saved. Saved from what? The darkness. But I like darkness. Well, then you're lost. But there's a way to turn out of the darkness. This is the message of Christ. Turn around. Face God. He'll forgive your sins. It's called repentance. But I don't want to repent then you will die in the darkness. Forgiveness is in the light. It's not in the darkness. Repentance is to turn and come to the light. We preach the message of light. We preach the message of truth. Forgiveness of sins is available 
to those who will turn around and face God. But my sins will be exposed. Of course your sins will be exposed. It's called truth. And then they'll be removed as far as the east is from the west. And you won't bear them any longer. This was the message of Christ 2,000 years ago. It is the same exact message today. Nothing has changed. But I can tell you this. Listen to me carefully. The darkness hates this message. Many today want to redefine this word called grace. So that if I can redefine grace, I can pretend like the darkness isn't dark. If I want to redefine grace, I can actually pretend like there is no darkness. There's only light. And then there's no need for repentance. It's a lie. I'll say it again. The Bible is clear. There is no forgiveness without repentance. Paul said, repent and turn to God. Turn around and face the light. Grace is God's offer. Let me tell you what grace is. It'd be one thing to tell you what grace isn't, but I need to tell you what grace is. Grace is God's offer for you to come out of the darkness and enter His light. He does not have to give you that offer. He did not have to give me that offer. Guess what? It's a gift. Grace was God's offer. To, let me give you an example of myself for Terry Cooper to turn around, leave the darkness, and walk into his light. He didn't owe me that. I did not deserve that. It's a gift of great love. Grace is not Grace is not God's offer for you to remain in the darkness. That's not grace. That's a lie from Satan himself. You know why? Because he's in the darkness. Grace is the fact that God has given you this moment in time to repent. Grace is a wait-a-minute moment when God has revealed the light of your darkness and given you a chance to turn and face Him. That's what grace really is. Don't let the world who is in darkness tell you what grace is. Paul reinforces his previous teachings to the Ephesus elders, and then he reveals what the Holy Spirit's been revealing to him. And this is really what I'm wanting to get into today. It's at this scene, he's called the elders, he reemphasizes his previous teaching, and then he wants to tell them something's changing. What's coming next? Verse 22. He says, And now I am bound by the Spirit. I am bound by the Spirit. That means he is, he is so in touch with God that wherever the Spirit directs him, he's got to go. I am bound by the Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lies ahead of me. The Holy Spirit compels Paul to go to Jerusalem. But there's a problem. The same Holy Spirit that says you're going to Jerusalem is also telling him, when you get there, there is great opposition, there is great suffering, and you're going to go to jail. And I want to pause for a moment. I want everybody to pay close attention to what I'm about to say. See, I believe the same Holy Spirit that directed Paul is the same Holy Spirit that directs the church today. 
And I got to tell you, in my heart of hearts, in the time in which I spend in private prayer before God, the Holy Spirit reveals to me the same thing today. There is suffering ahead for the church. Some of you don't want to hear it. You'd like to stick your head in the sand and pretend like it's not real. But I'm going to tell you, there is suffering and hardship ahead for the church. Why? You've got to ask the question, why would we say that? Why is the Holy Spirit revealing that? Because the true church, and I want to use the word carefully, the true church is not going to go along with the darkness. It's not. Not the true church. And the darkness will not be silent when the true church fails to go along with them. It didn't in the time of Paul, and it won't today. Because we stand in the light. And while we stand in the light, the darkness does not become neutral. The darkness becomes hostile. I want you to understand something. I believe that Holy Spirit that revealed to Paul that there's suffering ahead is the Holy Spirit that's not just revealing to me, but multiple people people that I have a great deal of respect for are also saying the same thing, that ministry leaders need to prepare the church for hard times. One of the guys that I have great respect for, I count him as a friend, is Bob Russell, the retired minister at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville. He's been here on several occasions. Every Sunday, he puts a blog out, and I always read it on Sunday night. This past Sunday night, Quite frankly, as I'm beginning preparation for this week's sermon, this past Sunday night, I read his blog, and it is in concert with what the the same Holy Spirit's revealing to me. In fact, I want to read to you what he wrote this past Sunday night in light of today's topic. Now, let me set it up. In his blog, he gets letters from people, and then he tries to answer some of their questions. This past Sunday, the question came in, from a lady who had decided she was not going to walk into the darkness. She wasn't a hater. She wasn't being mean or disrespectful. But she got called to jury duty and asked the question while she was being questioned for jury duty, do you support the LBGT lifestyle? To which she said no. And when she said no, they became angry with her and dismissed her. She wasn't mean. She just said, you know, I'm a Christian. I really can't go along with that because it disagrees with the Word of God. So she was not just dismissed, but she was scolded and then dismissed. She writes that to him, and I want to read to you his response. And I quote, The prophet Isaiah warned, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And then he says this, I think your experience is the new normal. In the future, followers of Christ will need to toughen up and anticipate that many in the world will, many in the world will reject our beliefs. Those of us over the age of 50 have been spoiled by growing up in a country where Christian values were the norm. That is no longer the case. 
Jesus warned us, and then he quotes the Scripture, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And then he goes back. He says, the fact that we are in the minority. That's never happened in our history. But the fact that we are in, now Christians, are in the minority and falsely accused of hate and bigotry should not change how we respond to the world. We are to speak the truth in love. We are still to pray for our enemies. And we are still to overcome evil with good. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount are our best encouragement. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. End of quote. It's not just me that believes that something's coming for the true church. There's opposition. And by the way, if you don't want the opposition, just go along. Just go along. Just go along. Suddenly you won't be opposed anymore. You know why? I want to show you something. I want you to listen carefully. See, Jesus was persecuted. In fact, he was so persecuted that eventually they put him on a tree and drove nails into him. What are, what are the, what's the cry? Crucify him! What did he do? Light came into the world. They didn't want the light because they were in the darkness. They hated the light, so they crucified the light of the world. So they persecuted him. They hated him. They rejected him. And he... He ascended to the right hand of the Father. But I'm going to tell you, listen, they still hate him today. The dark world still hates him today. But the difference is this. The difference is this. He's not walking around the streets of Jerusalem today. You know where he's at today? He's in here. And if you're a true believer today, he's inside of you. And they don't, they don't hate you. They hate the one who's in you. The darkness doesn't hate you. In fact, let me prove it. If you'll take that Jesus guy out of you, you can be their friend. But you're going to walk into the darkness with him because he's the light of the world. So if you don't want the light of the world, just ask the light of the world to leave. And suddenly, you won't be under any opposition anymore. You can be friends with the world. Just go with the world. You won't face any opposition because they don't necessarily hate you. They hate the one who is in you. And they hated him then. And they hate him now. And all who follow him, all who receive him, have turned away from the darkness and walked into the light. But if you don't like the opposition... If you don't want the persecution that lies ahead that's revealed by the Holy Spirit for those who truly believe, ask Him to leave. I don't want the light of the world. And then I hear Jesus in John chapter 3, and this is the verdict, light came into the world, but men love darkness more than light, for their deeds with thee were evil. I don't want to repent. I don't want to turn around. But understand, understand, that's your call. That's your choice. To some degree, I guess it's your free will. But understand, your choice has consequences. 
when you walk in the darkness with your back to God, you will never get to God with your back to Him. You get to God when you turn around and you face Him. It's called repentance. It makes you right with God because it purifies you from your sins. The blood of Christ, by faith, sets you free. The Holy Spirit compels Paul to go to Jerusalem. Even into pain, even into suffering. The Holy Spirit has not revealed the specific details. Just Jerusalem and suffering. So I ask you a question. Why go to Jerusalem? If the Holy Spirit convicted you to go to Lexington, will you go to Lexington? Or maybe you'll say, Frankfurt looks good today, honey. Why go to Jerusalem? That's a big question for us today. Why follow the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is leading us into obvious, obvious difficulty and suffering? Paul answers the question. Not me. Paul answers this question. And this has become the calling of all who will truly follow Christ. Next verse, verse 24. Paul says, because the Ephesian elders are like, don't go. Don't go. But Paul says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. You see, Paul is on a mission from God. He's not on a mission of Paul. He's on a mission of God. When you become a follower of Christ, you are on a mission of God. You've left your will, your way behind. You have accepted His will and His way. Our lives will be worth nothing if we stand before God having failed His calling. Let me ask you a practical question. How can I possibly call myself a follower of Christ if I refuse to follow Him? The Holy Spirit's saying, go to Jerusalem. They're suffering. How can I call? I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm just not going to follow Him. Does that make any sense to you? But what if there's hardship? What if there's suffering? How can I possibly call myself a follower of the way of Christ if I turn the wrong way when he calls my name? The Apostle Paul describes this way of God, this totally new way of life. And what I'm about to read to you will confuse some of you. Some of you are going to get it. It's found in 1 Corinthians. He reveals to the church two things. Let me read it. Verse 12. Anyone who builds on that foundation, what's the foundation? The gospel of Christ. Here we go. Anyone who builds, in other words, takes the, the truth of the gospel and then builds upon it. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. Now, here's the two choices. On the foundation, anyone who builds on the foundation, the first choice is what? You can build with gold, silver, or jewels. Let's put that over here. But there's another way you can build on this foundation. Hay, wood, and straw. But I'm going to tell you, I'll cut to the chase. There's a great fire coming. But you're building on a foundation, but there's a fire coming. And what are you going to do when the fire comes? Because there's a fire that's coming, and the building materials are your choice. Hay, wood, and straw, gold, silver, jewels. 
Verse 13. But on judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. Now, now push pause for a moment. Why am I bringing this up? Because the Ephesian elders are saying to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing if I don't complete the task God's given me. See, Paul understood the value of the hay, wood, and straw. It's not going to pass through the fire. Try to do God's work with hay, wood, and straw. It's the right foundation. It's the wrong work. It's the work of my own hands. It's the idea that I can complete God's will without following God. That I won't go to Jerusalem. I'll just do my own thing and make that the offering to God. It's hay, wood, and straw. It's going to burn up in the fire. You know what passes through the fire? Doing what the Holy Spirit leads you to do regardless of the cost. That's what goes through the fire. So he's going to Jerusalem. Let me, let me finish reading. Verse, let's go back 13. On judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, what's going to survive through the fire? It's not the hay, wood, and the straw. It's the gold, silver, and the jewels. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved. Is this about salvation? This is not about salvation. It's about eternal rewards. Not about salvation. Even if you use wood, hay, and straw, if you did that on the foundation, you're not saved by your works but it affects your eternal reward. That's what he's saying. That's what he's teaching. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? And the Spirit, here's the key, and the Spirit of God lives, all of you, the haywood straw people, the gold, silver, jewels people, all of you are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives in all of you. So what's the point? The point is, why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Because going to Jerusalem is silver, gold, and jewels. There's a whole lot of people that go to church. And if you be honest, what you'd like to give God is what you'd like to give God. It has nothing to do with what he's asked you for. You just want to give God what's convenient. And when things get hard, you still hold to the truth. But you have no intention of giving God what he's asked you to give him. It's giving him hay, wood, and straw. When what he's asked for is your treasure. Everything. Everything. Hay, wood, and straw, that's the fruit of a self-centered life. And I'll tell you, when it comes to rewards in the eternal kingdom, which honestly is so far beyond my human comprehension, I struggle with the thought itself. I'll say that. Hey, wood and straw are going to be burned up in the fire because he said so. Paul knows this, and he shared this with the church at Corinth and to us today. Judgment Day will reveal the fruit of our lives. What will pass through the fire of judgment? Can I just stop for a moment and ask you to look back at your life? How much of your life so far, is, if you'd be honest, is hay, wood, and straw? And how much of your life was gold, jewels, and silver? What's the difference? 
One is when you're absolutely surrendered to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is producing in you the gold, silver. I don't know how to produce gold, silver, and jewels. But a surrendered heart will produce that work. Not everyone's going to jail. I say hallelujah. Not everyone's going to face suffering. But many will. These next words to the Ephesians elders break my heart. Verse 25, back to the story. Paul says, and now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. I declare to you, I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, let's just say what it is. If anyone goes to hell, if any of you suffer hell, it's not my fault. For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. He knows he will never come this way again. He knows. The Holy Spirit's revealed it. He has been faithful, and if anyone is lost, Paul looks at them and says, if any of you are lost, it's not my fault. Is this sad? I think this scene is sad. Why? Because he has spent his life, pouring his life into these people. And yet he knows, he knows, some of them will probably still be lost. Can you imagine hearing this from the man that led you to Christ? Can you imagine hearing those words from a man who led you to Christ? You will never see me again. We'll have to meet in heaven. When I read that, I'll tell you what came to my mind. Maybe it's unusual, I'll tell you what came to my mind. When Peter and John, much earlier, walk up to the Jerusalem temple and the lame beggars laying there wanting, wanting money. And Peter and John look at the lame beggar and said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have in the name of the Lord Jesus, stand up and walk. And that dude stood up and walked. He had never walked in his whole life. And he's running and jumping and praising God. And, and the Sanhedrin calls in Peter and John and scolds them. And the Bible says that that lame beggar is hanging on to Peter. Why wouldn't you hang on to Peter? Because you know what Peter gave that guy? Some of you say, gave him his legs. No, no, no. If he gave you legs, the legs will one day give out again. You know what he gave that guy? Jesus. He gave him light. When all he ever knew before was darkness. How do you feel about somebody who shows you light when all you ever knew was darkness? That's Paul looking at these guys and saying, I know you'll never see me again, but I'm going to Jerusalem. Because God called me to go to Jerusalem. I think about in my own life. I grew up in a, in a rural setting in a little country church. But I'm going to tell you, in that little country church that I grew up in, there were men who poured themselves into my life. And I look back at my life, I didn't even like me when I was 17. I was a jerk. Listen, I was a jerk. I was. I was a self centered jerk but I look back at my life and in that church there were men there were ministers who continually poured light into my darkness did I like it no was it working yes and now I look at those guys many of them have gone on what they gave me was treasure that affects my life today. 
And I look at them with great respect and thanksgiving in my heart. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Well, what's the good news? It's called life. How did that lame beggar look at Peter? It's called life. How did the Ephesian elders look at Paul? Life. You see, they didn't look at Paul and say, will you give me a 20-minute snack so I can get back into the darkness? No, 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 no. No. I want to know all you know about life. How do you look at the one that told you about light? Because in the room today, there are people that have poured themselves into you. There are people in your childhood who poured light into your darkness. How do you look at them? I can tell you how I look at the one. There's one in particular. It was August 1988. His name's Bob Molden. He was preaching at Corinth Church, and I have no clue what he preached about. I wish I could say I did. I don't. I don't remember anything he preached about. But I know this. It was that man preaching that night through which God changed my life. He revealed my darkness. And I turned and I faced God. I can tell you how I look at Bob Molden. I love that guy. Because he, he told me the truth about the light and he told me the truth about the darkness. And I am forever changed. I don't have time today to tell you what happened next in this story of Paul. In fact, that's the teaser for next week. Because I feel like if I keep going, I'm going to have a Eutychus in here and some of you are going to fall out. <laughs> I'll give you the title of next week's sermon. It's called The Wolves Are Coming. But I close with this thought. And some of you are going to be surprised. You might be offended. It's not my fault. The Greek translation of that original text in the book of Acts is this. The original Greek translates this way. I am innocent of your blood. Paul considered the proclamation of the gospel the reason of his life. Why did Paul forsake everything to follow Christ? on this mission trip to the world. Why? He did it to save their souls from the fires of hell. Eternal death and darkness. He did it to save them. So what is it that made Paul innocent of their blood? What is it that equipped him to be able to say, it's not my fault. If any of you face eternal death, it's not my fault. Why did he say that? How is he qualified to say that? Because he said he did not shrink back from declaring all that God's Word and all that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him. Today is my 30th teaching from the book of Acts. Today is number 30. And I'm going to ask you a question. What does this book mean to you? If you be honest, some of you, it doesn't mean anything to you. In fact, some of you wonder why, why is it taking you 30 and you're not done? What does it mean to you? 
You see, Acts is the story of the early church and the Apostle Paul written by Dr. Luke. I believe it's God's Word. Every bit of it, I believe it's God's Word. And I ask you a question. If you disagree or you say, no, I don't believe it's God's Word, are you willing to bet your soul on that? Because you are. You are. You're betting your soul against it being God's Word. This same Paul wrote Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and maybe Hebrews. Not sure about Hebrews. But I want to repeat verse 26 and 27. Listen carefully. Paul said, I declare today that I have been faithful. And if anyone suffers eternal death, if any one of you goes to hell, it's not my fault. For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. And I'm going to ask you a question. What are you going to do with those words today? What are you going to do with that word? What are you going to do? Because everybody does something with this. You can ignore it, pretend like it doesn't have any application in your life, act like, I'll be glad when he's done. That's okay. That's fine. You're not hurting my feelings. What are you going to do with these words of life that rescue people from the fire of eternal death. What are you going to do with them? Do you believe these words are the word of God or simply the word of man? I believe they're the word of God. I believe these teachings of Paul are the very word of God, revealing the way, the only way to eternal life, the only way to eternal life. Paul said, it's not my fault, and today I humbly join him in that same statement. I have not compromised the Word of God. And I have trusted in the Holy Spirit's power to preach in this place for now 19 years. And I look at the room today with tears in my eyes. And I say, if any of you are lost, it is not my fault. Because I have told you the truth. I have told you about the cross of Christ and the power of His name to make peace with God. I have told you about repentance that leads to life and the light that drives out the darkness. I have told you of the truth that reveals the lie. For I too consider my life worth nothing if I do not complete this mission that God has sent me on by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that is I never wanted to be a preacher. I can tell you for sure. When I was growing up, when I was in the business world, this would be the last thing on my list. But I had an encounter with God. And he told me what I was going to do. And I believed him. And I left my job. Listen. And I took a church that originally had 27 people. And I believe that he is who he says he is. And for 19 years now, I am preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe I was called to be a watchman with all my heart. I was called to warn people, to tell people about the darkness that's approaching. And yes, I also believe in the soon return of Christ. And I am anticipating the soon return of Christ. And I am anxiously expecting the soon return of Christ. And if that offends you, I'm sorry. But that's my worldview. 
if somebody once accused me that you use that to motivate people. If you think that's my motivation, you have no clue who I am. I actually believe he's coming. And yes, I believe there's suffering that lies ahead for the church. Because the true church is not going to go along with the darkness. It's not going to do it. It never has, and it never will. That's why there's going to be suffering. I also believe that many in the church right now, I believe there are people sitting in this room right now who are not ready. And you know you're not ready. And yet you sit there and do nothing. And there's people in this room right now that have sins that you have lived in the darkness and you don't want to walk into the light because you don't want to turn around. And you know, and somebody told you, somebody loved you enough to tell you the truth. And Jesus stands there waiting. If you will turn around, he will receive you. He'll forgive you. He'll purify your heart. I believe there's suffering and hardship ahead for the church. And I also believe this, there is a very great reward ahead for the church. A very, very great blow-your-socks-off reward for those who will endure to the last day. Jesus describes it this way, and I, I promise I'm going to read this and stop. Here we go. I can tell you the future. I can tell you the future. Matthew 24, Jesus says, Then you will be arrested. This is what's going to happen near the end. At the end, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> then you will be arrested and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many, not a few, many will fall away. They'll turn away. Many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it. And then the end will come. It's not my fault. It's not a statement of arrogance or pride. It is a statement I give in great humility. I have told you what I believe to be true. But the reality is you will have to believe for yourself. I can't believe for you and you are not going to believe for me. I'll ask Chad to come on out. But I can tell you this, Jesus said in advance, many will turn away. You know who those are? They're church people. They're not pagans, they're church people. Many are going to turn away. False teachers are going to come. They're going to be everywhere. The love of many will grow cold. The end will come, and then the end will come. Are you ready for the end? Can anybody, anybody walking out of the room today, walk out that door today, say, are you ready? I don't know when the end's coming. Are you ready for it? I know this. There's a promise. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So I'm going to pray. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we can see, our ears so that we can hear, our hearts so that we can believe, receive, and obey you. Turn from the darkness into your light. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. The invitation's open. Let's stand.